Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. My name is Barbara Kane, and I'm the head of the School of Philosophical and Historical Inquiry, which Estelle is an honorary research associate, and it's my very great pleasure to welcome you all here this evening. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which the University of Sydney is built, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and to acknowledge also our, our recognition of the fact that this has been a place of learning and culture over many, many centuries. So it's a very great pleasure to welcome Estelle tonight. I think she's known to many of you, and I'm not absolutely certain that I'm introducing you to her, but it is a very great pleasure for me to be here and to welcome her. Um, Estelle Laser has been working on the human remains from Pompeii over a number of years. It was the subject of her PhD thesis and her first book, which is called Resurrecting Pompeii, published in 2009. But in that book, as she says, she used her eyes and, and kind of traditional measuring instruments. In more recent years, Estelle's worked on the same remains or on casts from Pompeii using much, much, much more advanced technology and working with interdisciplinary teams of forensic dentists and radiologists and others whom she will introduce tonight. In 2015, um, Estelle was appointed as a consultant of the Pompeii Cast Restoration Project. And so this is an international collaboration as well as a sort of Australia-wide collaboration. And so it is a very great pleasure to welcome Estelle to talk to us about Inside the Plaster, Scanning the Victims of Pompeii. And the work we're going to hear about tonight, I think, is work that was done this year, earlier. So it's very recent work as well as earlier work. Thank you, Barbara. Okay, so the forms of the individuals who have been cast in plaster are perhaps the most poignant reminder of the fact that when we look at Pompeii, we're looking at the archaeology of a mass disaster. And perhaps the individual that has the most resonance for most people is the form of a dog. It's one of two non-human mammals that have been cast uh, in the years since the first casts have been made. It was found uh, in the um, front entrance of the conventionally named House of Vesonius Primus or Orpheus in 1874. And uh, it was a guard dog apparently according to um, interpretations of archaeologists at the time. And it was unwittingly um, chained to the front entrance which, and, uh, by the owners of the house, which stopped it from escaping. And this dog has um, spawned a lot of interest. A number of artworks based on this dog have been made, one of which was by Alan McCollum in 1991, where he made, he actually came to Pompeii, he had permission to use a secondary cast, so the casts um, have casts made of them to send to exhibitions. He was allowed to make uh, a secondary, use a secondary cast to produce a large number of uh, the, and he called it the dog from Pompeii. And it's about loss and disappearance. So um, by reproducing the dog, 
uh, the form of the dog. You get something that looks like the dog, but it's not the dog. And by continuously doing it, it's like continuously mourning something that's been lost. So a kind of mourning process. Now, what do these casts mean, however, in an archaeological sense? And that's what I want to talk about today. Um, this is part three in a, um, in a the saga of the human remains from Pompeii that we've been uh, looking at in terms of what lies within the plaster casts. And uh, for those of you that have been here before, I apologise because I'm going to have to do uh, what used to be done in the 20th century in cinemas, you know, in Saturday afternoon with the A film, they always had a B serial and half of that was always taken up with recapping the story so far. So <laughs> I'll start with the story so far. We'll go back to 1986 before most of the people in the audience were born when I started my work in Pompeii on the human skeletal remains. And... Um, I was given access to them uh, because no modern systematic study had been done at that point. And uh, people weren't very interested in them because they'd become disarticulated. All the bones had become separated. They were stored in mounds in ancient bathhouses that were not accessible to the general public. And uh, people didn't know what to do with them. So uh, I did something a bit drastic. I separated the bones into individual piles of bones so that, and left and rights for um, hips and um, leg bones, etc., so that each bone in each pile represented just one individual. And, um, and from those, I could use modern forensic techniques to establish who these people were in terms of what sex they were, what age they were when they died, what diseases they had, if they presented on the bones, um, any population affinity indicators, lifestyle indicators. People had written, without ever studying any evidence at all, that it was the old, the infirm, very young people, and for some reason women who became the victims, so I could actually test this using statistical studies. And what I found was um, that the sample of victims that I had at hand appeared to represent a random sample of a normally distributed population of victims. But having just individual bones to work with meant that I lost a lot of information because the more skeletal elements you have, the more you can tell. And I recognised almost straight away that when you looked at the casts of the victims, you could see little bones poking out. And it occurred to me that there were whole skeletons encapsulated in these casts and that if I could study those, I could get so much more information about these um, people who died in the mass disaster of AD 79. Now, the casts um, occur as uh, just a result of um, the phenomenon of how the site was covered by the eruption of AD 79. So just for those of you who... Um, uh, need to be reminded, we have a two-phase eruption. So what happens is we get a series of explosions um, in Mount Vesuvius and they result in an enormous eruption column that at its peak reaches a height somewhere between 27 and 32 kilometres into the sky. It has on top of it a huge um, eruption cloud and it hails ash and pumice 
in the direction of the wind on that day, which is heading towards the southeast and covering Pompeii. So in this image, we have a two-metre ranging pole. And you can see that in this first phase of the eruption, we get two and a half to 2.8 metres of ash and pumice falling down. Now, when the eruption, when the explosion stops, the eruption column can no longer support itself, so it starts to collapse. And this is when we get the super deadly phase of the eruption. We get a series of hot gas avalanches we call um, pyroclastic density currents, which come in two forms. Pyroclastic flows, which are dense avalanches of pumice, ash and gas that tend to hug the ground, a lot of them were funneled towards Herculaneum, and pyroclastic surges, which are dilute avalanches of particles suspended in hot air and um, gas that are not constrained by the, um, by the crater and can go, um, they can travel radially in any direction and they travel at phenomenal speeds, anywhere between 100 and 300 kilometres an hour, have tremendously high temperatures, anywhere between 100 and 500 degrees Celsius, lots of poisonous material associated with them. They're turbulent. They'll turn things into projectiles. Um, absolutely deadly. Now, the first surge didn't reach Pompeii. It killed the people who hadn't escaped from Herculaneum. The second surge didn't reach Pompeii. The third one reached the walls of Pompeii. And it was the fourth, followed almost immediately by the fifth, that wiped out anyone that hadn't managed to escape by that stage. And in this layer here, we have the fourth and fifth surges, some pyroclastic flows, the sixth surge here, and then some later material. And within this fourth and fifth surge layer, we get this amazing type of preservation. So anything organic in this layer is covered by very fine ash. It's the same chemical composition as cement. It hardens around anything organic. And over time, the soft tissue decomposes and percolates down through that, um, that nice porous layer here and leaves a void. And when they started digging, and they started digging in Pompeii officially in 1748, they started finding voids. They didn't know what to do with them, um, but they um, eventually started to cast them. And in 1863, they successfully managed to make the first casts of victims. These are actually victims that were cast in 1961 in the so-called Garden of the Fugitives. And Unfortunately, um, there wasn't a lot of documentation as to how these casts were achieved. Um, the first person to successfully cast human remains was um, the then director of the site in 1863, Giuseppe Fiorelli, and he's amazingly coy about how he managed to achieve the casts. And successive um, uh, scholars have also not really said a lot about how they have um, made the costs. So um, up until 2015, the accepted wisdom was that the victims died during the eruption, they're covered by this fine ash, their um, soft tissue decomposed, and when they started digging, they found holes. <clears throat> and uh, eventually, when they worked out how to cast them, you could recognise that you come across the void very easily when you're digging because you can actually feel this hollow underneath it's like a drum. And two holes were inserted, one for pouring liquid plaster of Paris in and another as a vent to let air out so that you could get plaster into the extremities, wait till the plaster dried, chip the ash away, and then you're left with the form of a victim as they were at the moment of death. And to date, we have 103 victims that are being cast including these two um, 
non-human mammals, the dog which we just mentioned, and a pig that was cast in 1977. You can see the bones inside. Um, where the skin is thin, they protrude out. And from the moment that the first casts were achieved, they captured the public's imagination. And no scientific work was done on them, but um, a lot of stories were written. So the first body that was found in 1863 was considered to be a giant of a man who was found on his back and was described not by Fiorelli, and this is really interesting. Fiorelli makes very scant descriptions. The really the major description we have is by someone who wasn't actually there when the casts were made, a gentleman called Septon Vini, who was... Um, who was a scholar at the time, and he, he writes that um, Mr Fiorelli used some um, tongs to take a couple of bones out, but essentially the plaster was poured in. We get this amazing giant of a man who died on his back like a man. The other victims, there were three, victim, uh, three more victims that were cast, and this is the first victim, <clears throat> um, and uh, assumed to be men, they reckon they could see the... Um, the remains of a moustache on this person and that there was um, some clothing evident, hard to see though, um, that suggested that maybe this tall person was Northern European and a soldier. Um, maybe you need an active imagination for that. And that the other three victims were um, an older woman and a younger woman. And I'll talk about the fourth victim in a minute. The older woman was assumed to be of lowly birth on account of the fact that she had large protuberant ears. I'm not making this up. And, um, and the other one had very shapely limbs and was about, depending on who you read, somewhere between 14 and 16 years of age. The fourth victim was described by some people as a misshapen male, but generally became known as a pregnant female. And now anything that looked vaguely like it had a distended belly became known as a pregnant female female. So this is the fourth victim cast in 1863. The tenth victim cast in 1875 um, has a slight swelling in the abdomen region, obviously a pregnant female. And um, in 1991, uh, these two casts were made and they're interpreted as a man protecting his wife, yes, a pregnant female. So you get the idea. <laughs> now, I knew from very early on that um, there was a lot of art as well as science in the um, manufacture of these casts. They were made by restorers who were used to restoring statues and they, um, they brought with them their sculptor's skills. And of course, plaster is um, a tricky material. It often will get holes in it and bubbles. And so they had to restore those and they would restore them fairly creatively. And it was very clear um, without really doing a lot of research, that you can date the casts stylistically um, over time. So this is the seventh cast that was made in 1873, um, often described as a sleeping man or a sick man because he, um, it doesn't seem to be showing any resistance to the eruption. Compare that with this cast made in 1961 in the house of um, uh, Marcus Fabius Rufus on the western edge of the site. It, um, definitely doesn't look naturalistic, um, like a 19th century statue. It's got fairly rubbery limbs, very schematic facial features, and um, if anything, looks more like a modern sculpture. 
Um, so we knew about that, but I assumed that the bones would nonetheless be inside. And we had the first opportunity to test that here in Sydney in 1994 when, um, when uh, a Pompeii exhibition came to Australia and was exhibited at the Australian Museum in Sydney. And amongst the exhibits was the one cast ever to have been experimentally made in resin. And uh, it was made not in Pompeii, but near Pompeii, at a site we call Aplontus, uh, in a, what is a complex. It was a working farm where 54 victims were found. And in 1984, this uh, cast was made in resin. It was very difficult to achieve. Uh, the restorer who made it wrote a book about it. Uh, he used a technique that was something like the lost wax technique used for making bronze statues. Um, and the resin hasn't lasted very well. It's become um, very brittle and the colours darkened. It's not doing very well, so they haven't made another one. But we were allowed to um, give this cast the first ever um, X-rays and CT scans that have ever been made on one of these victims. So it was transported after the museum closed for the day to an, um, to an X-ray clinic in Sydney, uh, to a day clinic and was subjected to a full set of x-rays and CT scans up to here. It does have um, the arms are bent, uh, probably as a result of um, the effect of heat on protein, which causes it to shrink. And you tend to get contraction in the direction of the biggest muscle mass, um, which generally makes the arms flex like a boxer's. Um, you need it to meet at minimum a temperature of somewhere between 200 and 250 degrees Celsius at or around the time of death. And this was um, wonderful because we showed, for the first time, we were able to actually um, demonstrate that you could interpret these casts from the skeletons rather than just superficial inspection and circumstantial evidence. So the skeletal evidence suggested that we were looking at a female, a mature female, where all the bones and teeth had developed. Um, consistent in age with someone in their 30s. Um, they died with their mouth open. So I worked with a team of a radiologist, radiographers, a forensic dentist, an orthopedic surgeon, and an anatomist. And the radiographer for the forensic dentist could put normal dental x-ray plates within the mouth and was able to establish the teeth were worn quite flat from um, having a diet of um, stone ground flour, um, that there were uh, caries or tooth decay in four of the teeth. In some cases, the entire crown had been consumed, that uh, there was an abscess forming on the apex of one of the roots and there was some gum disease. Um, we can certainly tell the difference between wet and dry bone fractures, so those that occurred a long time after death, which is what's happened. We're looking at an upper arm uh, with a bracelet on it that was made of gold with an emerald and um, the two bones of the forearm. And all those fractures are dry bone fractures that occurred a long time after death. And the backbone, the spine was beautifully articulated, no signs of arthritis, the ribs still in place. So that told us that we really, it was really worthwhile to pursue a study of the casts. I applied for permission to study the casts and um, was given permission. Uh, I, I didn't apply for some time after we did the first study. Um, we got permission to study, to X-ray and CT scan all the casts in 2011 with a couple of caveats. 
Uh, one was nothing was to be removed from the site, and the other was that um, we weren't allowed to lift the cuffs onto the bed of a CT scanner so we couldn't CT scan them. Now, bringing a team onto the site is a really expensive um, process, so you have to bring all your team out, you have to bring your equipment out, you need generators and the like. And getting funding for sort of arts-related projects is not that easy. And interestingly, a large part of the funding for my research um, since 2012 has come from documentary companies. So there are about five documentaries made um, in Pompeii every year. And of course, um, people are always interested in that winning combination of um, dead bodies and Pompeii. Um, so in 2012, there was a documentary being made. Um, they always have cheesy titles. This was Pompeii, the mystery of the people frozen in time. And um, I was, uh, because I had the permission, um, I was there. Um, they wanted to take some x-rays of the um, skulls of the casts so that they could do facial reconstruction, even though they do have faces. And um, uh, the agreement was that I would get all the data that were collected. Now, they brought out a um, digital x-ray engineer, um, Stain Luke, this gentleman here from Belgium, and he's since become part of my team. So he's um, there with the 2012 portable di um, e uh, digital x-ray machine, which was designed for um, veterinary purposes for animals that won't happily go into a veterinary clinic like um, giraffes and rhinoceroses. So you take the equipment to them. And um, the equipment's improved dramatically since we started this project. He understood that getting x-rays through dense plaster was going to be a real problem because um, the um, density of the plaster in the bone was pretty much the same. So he dealt with this by doing experimental work. He ate barbecued meat for his dinner for three weeks and embedded bones from his meals in plaster of various thicknesses to work out how much radiation was required to get a readable image. And of course, unfortunately, we, we don't have to worry about how much radiation we bombard our victims with because they're already dead. Um, so... <laughs> Um, and I'm not going to show you a lot of these cases, but just one. So this victim here, you can easily make out the eye sockets, the opening for the nose, the upper and lower teeth, and the bone of the jaw. And from, uh, um, from a different amount of dosage, you can actually even see that we've got um, the roots of the teeth coming down to the, um, to the bone of the jaw. Now, everything changed for us in 2015. And that was because as part of the Great Pompeii Project, which is a, which is a huge project, multidisciplinary project, to remediate Pompeii um, that's funded uh, by the European Union and the Italian government to the tune of 105 million euros, they embarked on a cast restoration project. So 86 of the 103 casts that have been made were taken either to a makeshift laboratory in the so-called House of the Golden Bracelet on the western edge of Pompeii, or um, they, were, um, they were restored in situ. And the restorers cleaned the casts. They attached, reattached limbs that had come off with carbon fibre dowels. They introduced uh, nanoparticles of consolidant uh, through infusions via intravenous drips to um, make the plaster a bit more robust. And they laser scanned all the casts. So they were scanned um, top and bottom. 
and then the, pho the photographs that they made as well were stitched onto them. So you can now study them in three dimensions without um, actually having to pick them up. And uh, they also, the data that are collected can be um, printed on a 3D printer. So huge amount of information was gained. And I came onto this project, uh, as um, Professor Kane said, as a consultant in um, sort of towards the end of it. And one of the requirements of this project is that um, that information is disseminated and new research is done and disseminated at a popular and at an academic level. And the BBC were making a documentary of this project and asked me if they could film me X-raying and CT scanning the casts. I said, you're most welcome, but you're a little premature. We don't have funding yet. So they said, can we help? Um, yeah, within a nanosecond, they had a reply. And before you knew it, um, I was able to bring um, my team from Australia. Um, and so we have Dr. Elaine Middleton, who's actually here in the audience tonight. He's uh, a forensic dentist who's done a lot of work with Interpol in um, trying to, uh, uh, well, in establishing standards for um, identifying victims of mass disasters. And he's actually holding a portable um, dental digital X-ray machine, which, is, uh, which has been used for the identification of victims from um, the Bali bombing from the 2004 tsunami in Thailand and most appropriately from the AD7 and now being used for the AD79 um, victims of um, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Um, Associate Professor Zung Vu, who's also in the audience tonight, um, from the University of Notre Dame, is uh, an amazing anatomist and radiologist and he's essential for interpreting the CT scans. Stain Luke um, came again from Belgium, but this time with the 2015 iteration of the portable digital X-ray machine, which has now a lot more grunt. And um, uh, we also have another team of experts. So on the left, we have Roberta Canaluglia, who's uh, from Philips and his colleague from Milan. Uh, and to the right of, that's the peak that was cast in 1977 on the bed of the CT scanner, we have a, um, a doctor from Selena, radiologist, who um, was responsible for getting Phillips involved, Giovanni Babina. And the gentlemen in the blue nitrile gloves were the big game changers for us. They are um, restorers from the cast restoration project, and they were able to lift and carry the casts so that we could um, now use CT scanners. Phillips actually um, brought, um, I'll just come back to that in a second. <laughs> Phillips brought a CT scanner onto the site. I want to show you um, one of the most important members of our team who sadly wasn't on site, and that she's also here in the audience, Associate Professor Catherine Welch, who's um, uh, from uh, uh, ancient History, who's the um, project coordinator. Without her, this project wouldn't happen. And we're currently, um, this lecture tonight is actually part of a course we're teaching for um, the Rome Summer School, which we're going to be teaching in January in Italy. And we will be taking students to see the work we've been doing in Pompeii. Um, so um, Academy Travels also supported this project. So not only did Phillips um, provide equipment, but Academy Travel, especially their school and university program, has kept me in Pompeii for most of my life for the last years. So I've been able to work. And of course, we've received a huge amount of support from um, television um, crews. So um, the first one 
in 2015 um, was uh, from Lion TV, who were um, actually um, commissioned to do a documentary for the BBC with Mary Beard, who's there with the wonderful leopard skin shoes. And it's, it's a humbling experience doing this work. I was forced to stand on a box to do my interview, as I like stature. <laughs> um, uh, this year, I worked with a, a film crew from Voltage TV who are doing a three-part documentary series um, for Channel 5 in England. And um, their presenter was, like, she's the anti-Mary Beard. It was um, Bethany Hughes, often described as the Nigella Lawson of archaeology. Um, <laughs> and working with the film crew is really interesting. Um, it's, it's wonderful and terrible at the same time. I mean, the wonderful thing is that we were able to do the work um, and, of course, the information that's obtained can... Um, it, it is disseminated very quickly to a wide audience, so that's great. The problem working with the film crew is that um, you work to their agenda. So normally, with a research program, you would have your own research design and choose your own samples, but that wasn't the case. We worked much more opportunistically, but um, nonetheless, it's been a good relationship. So Phillips um, actually brought a 16-slice hospital CT scanner onto the site, and it was set up um, just outside the walls of Pompeii near the amphitheatre at the southern end of the site, which um, was home in 2015 to a temporary exhibition of 21 of the restored casts. Um, this... Um, architect-designed um, plywood pyramid, um, I'm told, was meant to reflect Mount Vesuvius. Um, <laughs> and the casts uh, inside were put in this kind of pit and set on these interesting supports. Um, so the restorers, when they were taking casts from the laboratory, they had to be manhandled down ancient steps and into a van. From the exhibition, it was a bit easier. They were taken out and put on a stretcher and carried when possible on a trolley, but Pompeii's very uneven, so um, quite often they just had to carry the casts on a stretcher, which was specially designed to um, minimise vibration to ensure that the casts weren't damaged. But the weight of a cast on the stretcher is something in the order of 200 kilos, so it was um, quite a big deal that the restorers were forced to carry these across the site. Okay. So the CT scanner works very simply. You put your patient, or in our case, the cast, on a motorised platform which goes through this um, gantry, this circular entrance, which has a rotating X-ray beam. So as the patient or the cast goes through, a series of X-ray slices are taken, and then these can be stitched together with a computer, and they can be sliced or diced in any direction. So um, here's a cast going in. And if this will play for me, these are a series of slices from a cast that was found in the 1970s outside um, the, uh, one of the gates, the Portanola. And you can see, um, and the colour's an artefact, but you can see there have been metal reinforcing rods introduced. We're going from the legs into the body cavity. You get a flare from the rods. And then as we go through, you're going to start to see the arms appearing. You'll see three round circles. They're the bones of the upper arm and the two bones of the forearm. And then as we keep going, we're going to see the um, bones of the skull appearing, first the lower jaw, and then the upper jaw, there's a lower jaw, the upper jaw, and then we're going to go out through the top of the skull. So they're the slices, and the magic happens with post-processing. 
So again, the colors are artifacts. So um, we can get, um, with volume rendering, the out external surface of the um, victim. And then we can slice and dice it in any direction. So it's a very powerful tool. OK, so, uh, and this here in the middle is a metal reinforcing rod. OK, so let's look at some of the victims. Um, the dog, which we've already met, uh, we put into the CT scanner, and this is what we found. No bones at all. <laughs> but a lot of metal reinforcing the two bronze rings and um, clearly here it had been um, restored. And with the volume rendering, we can actually see the different colours of the plaster tell us that um, they, they, they reflect different densities of plaster. And what this tells us is that this dog was actually made in about six or seven pieces. What were they doing? Um, clearly not what we expected. And this is the joy of archaeology. You, um, you never know what you're going to find until you do the research, and then, of course, you have to deal with that. Um, so um, we always believed, as I showed you earlier on, that everything was left inside and the plaster poured inside and waited to be set. I did mention that uh, Septembrini, when he wrote about the first cusp being made, mentioned um, that Fiorelli used some long tongs to take a couple of bones out. Not the whole skeleton. <laughs> so um, this was a bit of a surprise. Um, Clearly, um, when limbs have been lost, they've probably been restored and um, new ones put on. But how we interpret this is a real problem. And what are we looking at here? What's original and what's been created by restorers? So this is uh, a problem that we're now being forced to deal with. <clears throat> uh, this year, we, we um, CT scanned the cast of the 14th victim. This person the restorers are picking up, he's known as the... This person is known as the supine male. Uh, they were cast in um, 1899, uh, 89, sorry, 1889, with um, uh, an another two victims, allegedly a male and a female, and uh, a laurel tree, uh, which is thought to only flower in, um, well, which bears fruit in autumn. So that was used to argue for a later date for the eruption. Anyway, we put this victim through the CT scanner and what we saw inside was very, very little in the way of skeletal evidence, but um, a lot of metal reinforcing rods and brackets and uh, some of the um, pumice stones that they were lying on. So what were the, what were the restorers doing? Now, in 1914, two victims were cast in the so-called house of the Cryptoporticus. Um, they formed the basis for the two protagonists in this fine work about Pompeii in 3D, which had a very short release in 2014. It was made by Paul W.S. Anderson, and while he had absolutely no understanding of how the casts were made, he used them as the basis for his characters. And so his hero, played by Kit Harrington, um, who discovered that no, he could not outrun a pyroclastic surge, so decided to meet his fate in an embrace with his um, lover, um, uh, was based on these two individuals. Now, interestingly, up until this year, they've always been interpreted as two women. Um, this year, it was um, slightly modified because um, 
Before they did the cast restoration project, they took some bone samples and sent them off to Professor Caramelli in um, Florence, who was able to extract um, some DNA and got a readable sequence for this victim here, which he determined was probably a male because we deal with probabilities. And this victim here, um, they didn't get a readable um, sequence from, but for some reason the popular press got hold of it and decided that uh, they were both males and obviously gay lovers because what else would they be doing when their world was coming to an end? Um, anyway, they were cast, I don't know if you can see it here, but they were actually cast in two pieces. So, um, and so we were able to put each of the casts through the CT scanner in 2015. And you can see here, in fact, where the head of one cast sits over the other. This was a younger individual. Unfortunately, a lot of the bones had been removed. But we had enough information to be able to say that this was a very young individual. We couldn't get a sex from the bones, but we could say that they were um, uh, sub-adult uh, in their teens. And the other individual was, um, was uh, also quite young, but, um, but fully adult, so um, somebody um, beyond their teenage years. Now, interestingly, um, now is the time that we're starting to do the research project. Um, Mr. These casts were made um, by Spinazzola uh, in 1914, and he showed a real change in the way that casts were made. So the reason that Fiorelli and his restorers were able to, man to achieve casts of victims in the 19th century is because Fiorelli started to dig horizontally, so he dug stratigraphically from top to bottom. Um, but when they dug up and um, when they discovered the forms of victims and they made casts of them, they removed them from their archaeological context. And it's very difficult to get any idea of, um, of what their context actually was. In fact, one of the projects we're aiming to do now, working with um, uh, the head of the um, uh, laser scanning team from the Cast Restoration Project, Gianni Caranta, is to actually um, virtually recreate the site because we can scan the buildings and we can um, virtually replace the casts at the levels that they're alleged to have been found so we can see the patterns of their finds which might give us some information about um, not just their context but might give us some clues about why some are better preserved than others and why um, and how the victims met their fate. Um, Spinazzola made a big leap. He decided to show the casts in context. So he had photographs taken. Unfortunately, he didn't recognise um, the skeletal elements as being of scientific value. So um, what happened was he, and he wrote a directive about this, that when they made the casts, they were actually to remove as many bones as possible to ensure the best cast possible was made, which is why we don't have enough bones in these casts. Um, luckily, there are a number of casts where we do have large quantities of bones. So this individual was found outside the Portanola in the 1970s with a number of other victims. And we do have um, a huge number of skeletal elements surviving from this victim. So I'm not going to talk about them tonight, but I'll talk about because. I assume at some point you do want to go home. Um, so I'll just talk about some of the victims that we've looked at. Um, so 
1974, uh, under a staircase on the western edge of the site in the so-called House of the Golden Bracelet, um, they found uh, a number of victims. Um, there was a very small child and a child standing on an adult and another adult. They were assumed to be a family, but we really don't know. Um, we were able to put the child into the CT scanner, and this is the volume rendering of the external surface of this individual. And um, we have also the insides, which um, have a large number of bones. So we've got the skull, we've got the vertebrae, we've got ribs, we've got um, hip bones, we've got a number of the limb bones and the hands and feet. And um, we found that there were the remains, or there was the remains of um, a buckle. So it's not iron, um, but it's some metal buckle that probably bunched up um, and ended out quite high on the chest when they fell with the, um, with the pyroclastic surge. And um, Elaine Middleton uh, was able to establish age at death from looking at the teeth. So I'm just going to show you a series of slices through the skull so you can see the openings for the eyes, the opening for the nose, we've got the, um, these are the adult teeth forming high in the jaw. They form from crown to root, and there are no roots developed yet. And these are the first set of teeth, the milk teeth. And um, by looking at which teeth have erupted and the patterns of, um, uh, of development, we can get a fair indication of the age of the person when they died. You can see the lower jaw. And again, we've just got the milk teeth or the deciduous teeth erupted and the adult teeth forming in the jaw. And Elaine um, established an age of somewhere between two and a half and three and a half years of age at the time of death for this poor um, child. Um, now, um, he is very experienced in establishing age at death and he thought that this person was probably closer to three years of age when they died. And the skeletal evidence um, certainly confirms this. So we're looking at a slice through the hip We've got the thigh bone and the shin bone, uh, the heel bone, and these little bones of the foot don't um, form as bone until about three years of age, which um, confirms his, uh, Elaine's um, interpretation. The other victims, unfortunately, were in positions where they couldn't fit into the gantry of the CT scanner, so we scanned them um, during the course of a night in the um, amphitheatre display. Um, uh, Obviously, we did it at night so that we wouldn't expose uh, members of the public to radiation. And you can see Elaine Stain and one of the BBC film crew uh, wearing um, uh, lead uh, vests and gloves. And uh, the um, child standing on the adult, you can see the bones of the skull, but internally, there's, it's quite empty. But down here at the waist level, you can see here, and it'll flip because it's a different angle, the lower jaw. So when the um, soft tissue decomposed, the lower jaw dropped and fell into that empty body cavity. And Elaine was able to establish that these were, um, this was the lower jaw of a child probably about five to six years of age. Now what's really interesting is this cast was made in 1974. We've got these very strong iron reinforcing rods and down here it looks like they are bricks what on earth were they doing when they manufactured the cast? So this is something that um, we need to um, deal with um, to understand what we're looking at when we look at the cast. The adult that they're standing on 
is a mature adult with uh, quite a bit of wear on their teeth and two teeth lost considerable time before death. The other individual is a younger adult with um, a good set of dentition, no tooth decay, again, a lot of reinforcing rods introduced. So these casts were heavily manipulated. Now this year, we were able to do something quite new. <clears throat> we were able to take five casts, uh, it was kind of a test, we're only allowed five, um, out of the site to the um, nearby local hospital um, to use their much better CT scanner. It produces five times the number of slices so we can get much better reconstructions. Um, now to do this, we had to get um, insurance and um, this was very problematic. In fact, getting this work done is probably much harder than doing the work. Um, this year, the superintendent, um, who's now the director general of what was the superintendency of Pompeii, but now is the Pompeii Archaeological Park, um, he requested that we form uh, a partnership, which is wonderful. It's an acknowledgement that, that um, the Italian government thinks this is a very important project. And he asked for us to have a memorandum of agreement, which needed to be in place before we could do any further work. And these costs needed to be um, insured. Um, the documentary company that was making the film, which is called, it's not out yet, Pompeii, The Final Countdown. Um, <laughs> uh, they, they decided to undertake the insurance, which was a, a nightmare because um, they are priceless. The price that was put on them was something in the order of half a million Australian dollars, but um, the, um, the archaeological site wouldn't tell the film company which insurance company they used for their exhibitions because they didn't want to um, make them obliged to use that company. So it took them nearly to filming time to get a company that was prepared to um, undertake uh, this insurance. And, um, and we also needed to get the memorandum of agreement in place. And I need to thank our colleagues at the University of Sydney, Lydia Sorrell, um, Beverly, Price and um, Pearlie Harrimal from um, for legal, contractual, and um, and insurance purposes, who um, worked literally day and night. They stayed here till ten o'clock at night because of the time difference to ensure we were able to do this work. Uh, the producer of the last two documentaries is on the left, Eleanor Mortaliti, actually translated the memorandum of agreement into Italian as well as found an insurance company. And Sarah Court from the Herculaneum Conservation Project helped us deal with the opaque bureaucracy of Italy. Um, now, Lego also played a very important role. Never underestimate the importance of Lego. Um, Candice Richards from the Nicholson Museum, bless her, um, she commissioned um, a leg two Lego minifigures of the Director General of Pompeii, Massimo Ozana. I know it um, bears an uncanny resemblance to Darren Hinch, but we won't go there. Um, uh, and um, this was to be presented to Professor Ozana when we signed the Memorandum of Agreement. But before we did this, and I just want you to understand how seriously we take research at the University of Sydney. So Dr Jamie Fraser, Dr Craig Barker and myself took um, the second Ozana minifigure and took him on a tour of Lego Pompeii in the Nicholson Museum, <laughs> and um, where he was able to survey the work he's been doing for the great Pompeii project. So um, he's watching the casts being made, 
And he even came and visited me working on the bones <laughs> with my beautiful assistant who, um, who clearly wasn't chosen for his anatomical skills because he's trying to reconstruct a skeleton entirely out of leg bones. <laughs> I need to give him some remedial training. Um, and I can't actually remember where we left um, Mini Ozana. So um, what I recommend you do next time you visit the Nicholson Museum is ask yourself, where's Ozana? And see if you can find him um, roaming across the site. We took Mini Ozana to Pompeii um, in October and um, it created a huge stir. Um, you can see Mini Ozana's watching him sign the memorandum of agreement. Um, they brought um, the, um, their media office to um, record the event. And um, one of the outcomes we hope to have from this project is to actually have an ex exhibition here um, at the museum in Sydney. And um, they are very keen, in fact, to do a swap. If they can borrow our Lego Pompeii, we're in. <laughs> and, um, and in fact, um, they loved um, Mr. Ozana roaming through the site. Uh, Craig Barker, who took the photos, got an official thank you from Pompeii. And this reached the local press. So their articles in the, um, El Martino, La Repubblica, none of them mentioning the fact that we signed this important agreement, but all of them mentioning the Lego minifigure. Okay, so what did we do this year? So we removed five casts and took them to the hospital. Before each cast was moved, and you can see we used the same um, team of restorers, the casts were documented to within an inch of their depth so that every crack, every bit of um, damage that was on them before they left was recorded because anything new that happened would stop us from ever working on the project again. And... Um, and unfortunately, the insurance was in Catherine Welch's and my name, so we had a lot to be concerned about. Okay, the casts were then removed um, from their stands, and this one's specially made. Um, it's actually um, moulded perspex with uh, conservation material to stop the cast from um, getting damaged when it's moved. And then taken out to, I know it looks like a really um, grotty truck, but um, the box is specially designed with conservation material inside to stop the cast from vibrating when they take their journey. And um, there's a cast inside the box. In the case of this victim, we um, had to pack with conservation material, but it worked very well. We had with us at all times um, the head of the um, scientific laboratory in Pompeii, the woman on the right and again here, who um, um, her name's Alberta Martellone, who was um, very concerned, you know, that nothing happened to the casts and therefore um, recorded everything on her iPad and Bruno de Negris, who um, offered to jump in the box with the cast to make sure that they stayed safe and, and told the restorers to drive at funeral speed and made the Madonna go with them. So no traffic in Pompeii was moving on that weekend because our casts were travelling to the uh, local hospital. And um, when the casts arrived, the whole hospital came out to watch. And I don't have any photos, but there were flocks of nuns with their noses pressed against the glass. And the casts were put onto a um, trolley and then taken into the CT scanner. And again, with conservation packing, and put through the scanner. Uh, this individual, we measured them all before we went, and we knew the elbows on this person weren't going to go through the gantry. So um, it was actually 
um, scanned in two phases, so the head and then turned around and the feet. And the radiologist who was um, controlling the machine was very careful so the elbows didn't hit the gantry. Um, and when the cuffs were scanned, they were taken back and, um, and again, recorded in incredible detail to ensure that no, da no damage had occurred. So we passed the test, nothing terrible happened, we can continue the project. And I just want to show you um, a few of the cases that we looked at. So the um, victim in the foreground uh, is the ninth cast that was made in um, 1875, along with the tenth cast, which I showed you earlier, the alleged pregnant woman. And this individual, with the elbows that didn't fit in, um, actually had a huge number of bones surviving. Um, the bones of the skull weren't fully developed. You can see in the jaws the um, wisdom teeth haven't erupted yet. Um, I've been just chatting with Elaine Middleton. The, um, one of the incisors actually has incredible wear on it, which is a lot for what appears to be a very young individual. And certainly all the evidence um, suggested someone probably in their mid-teens. Um, uh, so with a phenomenal amount of tooth wear on, uh, on an incisor, which could be from either diet or possibly industrial usage of the teeth. So volume rendering, you can see where restoration's done because the different colours of the plaster show um, different plaster densities. And um, we can see inside we have a number of the bones surviving including the hip bones, um, which you can see here. And they do, the angle suggests uh, this is one of the many 17 features we look at. This angle here is very narrow, which suggests, even though it's a very young person, that they were probably a male. Now, the individual that they were found with, um, the 10th victim, as I said, was generally assumed to be a um, pregnant woman. And in fact, in this uh, drawing here done at the beginning of the 20th century by a scholar called Guzman, has actually made this individual look much more voluptuous. This person was often compared with a statue, um, the Venus Calipigus, um, the Venus with the beautiful bottom, um, in the Naples Archaeological Museum. But if you look at it, um, this is a drawing I did, you can see they're a bit more um, boyish in their figure. Anyway, we put this individual into the CT scanner and um, we obtained this scan. And inside, we didn't really see bones, but a lot of um, metal rods and brackets. And the plaster around the abdomen's a different density. So what was going on? I was a bit concerned that this individual um, was a cast of a cast. In 1943, um, Pompeii inadvertently became collateral damage of World War II. The American, um, British and uh, Canadian allies were trying to stop the Germans advancing and they bombed the coastline heavily. They didn't have the technology to control exactly where the bombs went and over 150 bombs hit Pompeii um, and, and they hit the museum where a lot of the casts were stored. And um, and it was thought that some were lost. This one wasn't thought to be one of the lost casts, but I was wondering about it. Also, um, in archival photos, the hand it's resting on is different in different photographs. Now, Zong Vu, who's wonderful, went through every single slice 
of um, this person. And I'm just going to show you some slices through this arm that they're resting on. So we've got the bed of the CT scanner. On the left is the elbow. And as we go through, slice by slice, we start to see an arm, a bone appearing. So that's the ulna, one of the bones of the forearm. And as we keep going through, we see another one of these um, bones, the second arm of the forearm, the radius. So this isn't a cast of a cast. It's the original cast. And, um, and we can also see here that the plaster on this side is much paler than that side. It's a different density. There's a line there. It was restored. So when the hand was lost and restored and put in with a metal dowel, which is going to show up as a flare in a second here. So what were they doing here? What we always believed about how the casts were made is just not true. If we look at the volume rendering of this individual, they don't really even look that female. I think that, um, that distended belly is really the clothing's bunched up as they fell down with the pyroclastic surge. And how they made the cast is obviously not what we've been told in the literature. This is one of the most recent casts made at the beginning of the um, 21st century by some Japanese scholars. They found two victims, one with shackles, almost certainly a slave, and another um, um, nearby. And what they did is before they made the cast, they emptied out or as many bones as they could so they could be studied in the laboratory and then poured in plaster into the remaining cavity, which leaves you with half a cast. So obviously that's what they have done in the past and the other half of the cast is probably a reconstruction. And our job now is to try and find out what's original and what isn't because it's very important in our establishment of um, what is original evidence and how we can interpret it. And to help this, I've started an oral history. I have spoken with these Japanese scholars, and I've also spoken with um, Antonio de Simone, who was responsible for um, these casts that were made in lime cement in 1991. And he said that, you know, they poured in lime cement, they pumped it in um, because they needed to do it quite quickly. And they were able to get, um, and we see this on a number of casts, the um, impression of clothing and sometimes even locks of hair. So we have amazing preservation. So just teasing out what's original and what isn't is one of our biggest problems. And I just want to end with one more cast, if you can cope, for just another couple of minutes. This cast was made in the 1930s by Mayuri. Um, it was found in a near a latrine at the southern end of the large um, gymnasium or palaestra uh, at the southern end of Pompeii near the amphitheatre. And Mayuri writes a very um, emotional description of this individual. Um, he, they found a number of victims inside the covered latrine. He thought they were workmen um, restoring this gymnasium, the palaestra, after the big um, earthquake of 62. So that's 17 year um, restoration project, quite big. Um, and that when the eruption started, they made their way to the palaestra, uh, to, the, to the toilet block and bolted the door. The victim that I just showed you wasn't fast enough. And um, Mayuri describes him as beating against the door, but no one opened it. And so um, Mayuri wrote, um, this individual curled himself up 
in his blanket like a caterpillar within its cocoon and resigned himself to death. And um, having been found near the skeleton of a mule was assumed to be a muleteer. The same victim was used as the basis of um, the evil villain in Pompeii in 3D. Um, this person um, was an evil Roman senator with no redeeming features, obviously a bully, and Paul W.S. Anderson assumed, like all bullies, this person was a coward and therefore based this character on the so-called cowering individual. Now, this is wrong on so many levels, but mostly because the person wasn't found looking like this. They looked like the figure on the right when they were found, and they were restored heavily after the bombardment because this individual was um, stored in the um, museum, the antiquarium on site that was bombed, and were restored uh, in 1947 changing the appearance. So a lot of plaster was ad added to the base of this cast until they were in a seated position so that um, they give, it gives a very, very different impression. Anyway, we put the cast through the CT scanner and to our amazement, we found um, that it was stratified. So we have a stratigraphic um, reading of this individual. There are different layers of plaster and different densities of plaster. And you notice that there's, it's all horizontal here. The head's been reattached with an iron rod, and we have, a, a, you know, our strata here are vertical, so they've obviously moved the head, um, rotated at 90 degrees. So would they, um, by putting the plaster in over a period of time, that gives the um, restorers a lot of time to um, manipulate the cast and recreate it in whatever image they like. And we are going to do some experimental work to try and understand better how these casts were achieved. I did a little bit of work um, in 2015. We weren't sure if we'd get readable um, images through very thick plaster. And so I embedded a series of um, non-human bones in um, a very big bucket um, uh, um, with plaster to see if we could get a reading. And, um, the uh, staff at um, the Morgan Glebe very kindly put the bucket with the bones in the thick plaster through the CT scanner. Um, so um, I found that, you know, just pouring and not being experienced with man making plaster of Paris, that um, as you made new, ba uh, new batches of plaster, it was different and you do get different densities. But this is something we're definitely going to explore. And using the new equipment, we can get these really lovely images. And um, um, my colleague, Roberta Caniglia, um, in Naples, has been isolating individual bones for us to study. And so by looking at the pelvis, for example, on this individual and, and the um, thigh bones, we can tell that we're looking at an adult, and almost certainly an adult male. So um, ultimately, what we want this project to do is to build on the work that I initially started on the disarticulated sample of human skeletal remains. We want to um, replace the use of the casts as props for storytelling with the lives that the bones inside actually can give us. And um, of course, we want to better understand how these casts were achieved and what they tell us about um, the um, about the uh, victims of the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Um, 
We are foregoing questions tonight in the interest of you getting home. Um, and I just wanted to end with um, the question that I'm always asked is, why do you do this work? Um, what is the point? I guess it's because people are interested and, um, you know, you're all here, so thank you. Um, I think also um, we are not, I mean, our evolutionary success is based on the fact that we're an intelligent animal and our intelligence is not contained within individuals. It's communal and cumulative. So we're the sum total of all those people that have preceded us. So by studying our ancestors, hopefully we can get a little insight into ourselves. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.